0: Welcome to Lifeline Theatres On The Air. I'm Alicia Duncan, Artistic Director. From Rogers Park in Chicago, Illinois, we invite you to open your mind to Tales of Poe, a dimension of sensation, of sound, of stories and sonnets from Edgar Allan Poe. This is the first of four programs from the deep caverns of eerie macabre tales just in time for all hallows eve if you're enjoying tales of poe you can support our podcast at patreon.com lifeline theater you might want to also check out first folio theaters prisoners and madmen two streaming video tales from their 2018 production of the madness of edgar Allan poe running now through October 31st. For more information, visit firstfolio.org. This is the final Tales of Poe, from the deep caverns of macabre tales for Halloween or All Hallows' Eve. Our first story is The Conqueror Worm, performed by ensemble member Jennifer Tyler.
1: Lo, tis a gala night within the lonesome latter years. An angel throng, bewinged, bedight, in veils and drowned in tears, sit in a theater to see a play of hopes and fears, while the orchestra breathes fitfully the music of the spheres. Mimes in the form of God on high mutter and mumble low and hither and thither fly mere puppets they who come and go at bidding of vast formless things that shift the scenery to and fro flapping from out their condor wings invisible woe that motley drama oh be sure it shall not be forgot with its phantom chased forevermore by a crowd that sees it not, through a circle that ever returneth in to the self-same spot, and much of madness, and more of sin, and horror, the soul of the plot. But see, amid the mimic rout, a crawling shape intrude, a blood-red thing that writhes from out, the scenic solitude, it writhes, it writhes with mortal pangs, the mimes become its food, and seraphs sob at vermin fangs in human gore imbued. Out, out are the lights, out all, and over each quivering form. The curtain, a funeral pall, comes down with the rush of a storm. While the angels, all pallid and wan, uprising, unveiling, affirm that the play is the tragedy man and its hero, the conqueror worm.
0: Thank you for listening to On the Air. If you enjoyed Tales of Poe, we hope you'll tune in every week in November for our next series, Sample of Solo, featuring fan favorites from past Filet of Solo storytelling festivals. And don't forget, you can support this podcast and future programming and get access to exclusive extras by heading to our Patreon page at www.patreon. Dot com slash Lifeline Theater. Our final story is Fall of the House of Usher, performed by ensemble member Christopher Hainsworth.
2: During the whole of a dull, dark, and soundless day in the autumn of the year, when the clouds hung oppressively low in the heavens, I had been passing alone on horseback through a singularly dreary tract of country, And at length found myself, as the shades of the evening drew on, within view of the melancholy house of Usher. I know not how it was, but with the first glimpse of the building a sense of insufferable gloom pervaded my spirit. I looked upon the mere house, upon the vacant eye-like windows, upon a few rank sedges, and upon a few white trunks of decayed trees with an utter depression of soul, which I can compare to no earthly sensation more properly than to the after-dream of the reveler upon opium, the bitter lapse into everyday life, the hideous dropping off of the veil. There was an iciness, a sinking, a sickening of the heart. I reined my horse to the precipitous brink of a black and lurid tarn that lay in unruffled luster by the dwelling and gazed down, but with a shudder even more thrilling than before upon the remodeled and inverted images of the gray sedge and the ghastly tree stems and the vacant and eye-like windows. Nevertheless, in this mansion of gloom I now propose to myself a sojourn of some weeks, Its proprietor, Roderick Usher, had been one of my boon companions in boyhood, but many years had elapsed since our last meeting. A letter, however, had lately reached me in a distant part of the country, a letter from him which, in its widely importunate nature, had admitted of no other than a personal reply. The letter gave evidence of a nervous agitation, The writer spoke of acute bodily illness, of a mental disorder which oppressed him, and of an earnest desire to see me as his best and indeed his only personal friend, with a view of attempting, by the cheerfulness of my society, some alleviation of his malady. It was the manner in which all this, and much more was said, it was the apparent heart that went with his request, which allowed me no room for hesitation, and I accordingly obeyed forthwith, what I still considered a very singular summons. Although as boys we had been even intimate associates, yet I really knew little of my friend. His reserve had always been excessive and habitual. I was aware, however, that his very ancient family had been noted time out of mind for a peculiar sensibility of temperament, as well as in a passionate devotion to the intricacies of musical science. I had learned, too, the very remarkable fact that the stem of the Usher race lay entirely in the direct line of descent and had always, with very trifling and very temporary variations, so lain. It was this deficiency, I considered while running over and thought the perfect keeping of the character of the premises with the accredited character of the people, which had at length so identified the two as to merge the original title of the estate in the quaint and equivocal appellation of the House of Usher, an appellation which seemed to include, in the minds of the peasantry who used it, both the family and the family mansion. I have said that the sole effect of my somewhat childish experiment, that of looking down within the tarn, had been to deepen the first singular impression. When I again uplifted my eyes to the house itself, from its image in the pool, there grew in my mind a strange fancy, a fancy so ridiculous indeed that I but mention it to show the vivid force of the sensations which oppressed me. I had so worked upon my imagination as really to believe that, about the whole mansion and domain, there hung an atmosphere which had no affinity with the air of heaven, but which had reeked up from the decayed trees and the gray wall and the silent tarn, a pestilent and mystic vapor, dull, sluggish, faintly discernible, and leaden hue. Shaking off from of my spirit what must have been a dream, I scanned more narrowly the real aspect of the building. Its principal feature seemed to be that of an excessive antiquity. The discoloration of ages had been great, yet, All this apart from any extraordinary dilapidation. No portion of the masonry had fallen. And there appeared to be a wild inconsistency between its still perfect adaptation of parts and the crumbling condition of the individual stones. Beyond this indication of excessive decay, however, the fabric gave little token of instability. Perhaps the eye of a scrutinizing observer might have discovered a barely perceptible fissure, which extending from the roof of the building in front, made its way down the wall in a zigzag direction until it became lost in the sullen waters of the tarn. Noticing these things, I rode over a short causeway to the house. A servant-in-waiting took my horse, and I entered the gothic archway of the hall. A valet of stealthy step thence conducted me in silence through many dark and intricate passages in my progress to the studio of his master. The room in which I found myself was very large and lofty. The windows were long, narrow, and pointed, and at so vast a distance from the black oaken floor as to be altogether inaccessible from within, dark draperies hung upon the walls. Many books and musical instruments lay scattered about, but failed to give any vitality to the scene. I felt that i breathed an atmosphere of sorrow, an air of stern, deep, and irredeemable gloom hung over and pervaded all. Upon my entrance, Usher arose from a sofa on which he had been lying at full length and greeted me with a vivacious warmth. We sat down, and for some moments, while he spoke not, I gazed upon him with a feeling half of pity, half of awe surely man had never before so terribly altered in so brief a period as had Roderick Usher. Yet the character of his face had been at all times remarkable, a cadaverousness of complexion, an eye large, liquid, and luminous beyond comparison, lips somewhat thin and very pallid but of a surpassingly beautiful curve, A fine, molded chin speaking, in its want of provenance, of a want of moral energy. Hair of a more than web-like softness and tenuity. These features, with an inordinate expansion above the regions of the temple, made up altogether a countenance not easily to be forgotten. In the manner of my friend, I was at once struck with an incoherence. His action was alternately vivacious and sullen. His voice varied rapidly from a tremulous indecision to that species of energetic incision which may be observed in the lost drunkard or the irreclaimable eater of opium during the periods of his most intense excitement. It was thus that he spoke of the object of my visit, of his earnest desire to see me, and of the solace he expected me to afford him. He entered at some length into what he conceived to be the nature of his malady. It was, he said, a constitutional and family evil, and one for which he despaired to find a remedy, a mere nervous affection which would undoubtedly soon pass off. It displayed itself in a host of unnatural sensations. Some of these, as he detailed them, interested and bewildered me, although perhaps the terms and the general manner of their narration had their weight. He suffered much from a morbid acuteness of the senses. The most insipid food was alone endurable. He could wear only garments of a certain texture. The odors of all flowers were oppressive. His eyes were tortured by even a faint light. And there were but peculiar sounds, and these from stringed instruments, which did not inspire him with horror. To an anomalous species of terror I found him a bounden slave. I shall perish, I must perish in this deplorable folly, thus... Thus and now, otherwise, shall I be lost. I dread the events of the future, not in themselves, but in their results. I shudder at the thought of even the most trivial incident. I have, indeed, no abhorrence of danger, except in its absolute effect, in terror. In this pitiable condition, I feel that the period will sooner or later arrive when I must abandon life and reason together in some struggle with the grim phantasm, fear. I learned moreover at intervals, and through broken and equivocal hints, another singular feature of his mental condition. He was enchained by certain superstitious impressions in regard to the dwelling which he tenanted, and whence for many years he had never ventured forth. He admitted, however, although with hesitation, that much of the peculiar gloom which thus afflicted him could be traced to a more... "'natural and far more palpable origin. "'To the severe and long-continued illness, "'indeed to the evidently approaching dissolution "'of a tenderly beloved sister, "'his sole companion for long years, "'his last and only relative on earth. "'Her decease would leave me "'the last of the ancient race of the ushers.' "'While he spoke, the Lady Madeline, "'for so she was called,' passed through a remote portion of the apartment, and, without having noticed my presence, disappeared. I regarded her with an utter astonishment, not unmingled with dread, and yet found it impossible to account for such feelings. The disease of the Lady Madeline had long baffled the skill of her physicians. A gradual wasting away of the person and frequent, although transient affections of a partially cataleptical character were the unusual diagnoses. Hitherto she had steadily borne up against the pressure of her malady and had not betaken herself to bed, but on the closing in of the evening of my arrival at the house, she succumbed to the prostrating power of the destroyer, and I learned that the glimpse I had obtained of her person would thus probably be the last I should obtain, that the lady, at least while living, would be seen by me no more. For several days ensuing, her name was unmentioned by either Usher or myself, and during this period, I was busied in earnest endeavors to alleviate the melancholy of my friend. We painted and read together, or I listened, as if in a dream, to the wild improvisations of his speaking guitar. I had just spoken to that morbid condition of the auditory nerve, which rendered all music intolerable to the sufferer, with the exception of certain effects of stringed instruments. It was, perhaps, the narrow limits to which he thus confined himself upon the guitar which gave birth in great measure to the fantastic character of his performances. One ballad led us into a train of thought where and there became manifest an opinion. This opinion, in general form, was that of the sentience of all vegetable things, but in disordered fancy, the idea had assumed a more daring character and trespassed under certain conditions upon the kingdom of inorganization. I lack word to express the full extent or the earnest abandon of his persuasion. This belief, however, was connected, as I have previously hinted with the gray stones of the home of his forefathers. The evidence of their sentience, he said, is to be seen in the gradual yet certain condensation of an atmosphere of their own about the water and the walls the result is discoverable in the silent yet importunate and terrible influence which for centuries has molded the destinies of my family and which has made me what you now see. One evening, having informed me abruptly that the Lady Madeline is no more, he stated his intention of preserving her corpse for a fortnight previously to its final internment in one of the numerous vaults within the main walls of the building. At the request of Usher, I personally aided him in the arrangements for the temporary entombment. The body, having been encoffined, we two alone bore it to its rest. The vault in which we placed it was small, damp, and entirely without means of emission for light. Lying at great depth, immediately beneath that portion of the building in which was my own sleeping apartment, It had been used apparently in remote feudal time for the worst purposes of a dungeon keep, and in later days as a place of deposit for powder or some other highly combustible substance, as a portion of its floor and the whole interior of a long archway through which we reached it were carefully sheathed with copper. The door of massive iron had been also similarly protected. The door's immense weight caused an unusually sharp, grating sound as it moved upon its hinges having deposited our mournful burden upon trestles within this region of horror we partially turned aside the yet unscrewed lid of the coffin and looked upon the face of the tenant a striking similitude between the brother and sister now first arrested my attention and usher, defining perhaps my thoughts murmured out some few words from which I learned that the deceased and himself had been twins, and that sympathies of a scarcely intelligible nature had always existed between them. Our glances, however, rested not long upon the dead, for we could not regard her unawed. The disease which had thus entombed the lady in the maturity of youth had left, as usual in all maladies of a strictly cataleptical character, the mockery of a faint blush upon the bosom and the face, and that suspiciously lingering smile upon the lip which is so terrible in death. We replaced and screwed down the lid, and having secured the door of iron, made our way with toil into the scarcely less gloomy apartments of the upper portion of the house. And now, some days of bitter grief having elapsed, An observable change came over the features of the mental disorder of my friend. He roamed from chamber to chamber with hurried, unequal, and objectless step. The pallor of his countenance had assumed, if possible, a more ghastly hue, but the luminousness of his eye had utterly gone out. The once occasional huskiness of his tone was heard no more, and a tremulous quaver, as if of extreme terror habitually characterized his utterance. I beheld him gazing upon vacancy for long hours in an attitude of the profoundest attention, as if listening to some imaginary sound. It was no wonder that his condition terrified, that it infected me. I felt it creeping upon me by slow yet certain degrees the wild influences of his own fantastic yet impressive superstitions. It was, especially upon retiring to bed late in the night of the seventh or eighth day after the placing of Lady Madeline within the dungeon, that I experienced the full power of such feelings. Sleep came not near my couch, Whole hours waned and waned away. I struggled to reason off the nervousness which had dominion over me, but my efforts were fruitless. An irrepressible tremor gradually pervaded my frame, and at length there sat upon my very heart an incubus of utterly causeless alarm. Shaking this off with a gasp and a struggle, I uplifted myself upon the pillows, and peering earnestly within the intense darkness of the chamber hearkened, I know not why, except that an instinctive spirit prompted me to certain low and indefinite sounds which came through the pauses of the storm at long intervals I knew not whence. Overpowered by an intense sentiment of horror, unaccountable yet unendurable, I threw on my clothes with haste, for I felt that I should sleep no more during the night. A light step on the adjoining staircase arrested my attention. I presently recognized it as that of Usher. In an instant afterward he rapped with gentle touch at my door and entered bearing a lamp. His countenance was, as usual, cadaverously wan, but moreover there was a species of mad hilarity in his eyes and evidently restrained hysteria in his whole demeanor. His air appalled me, but anything was preferable to the solitude which I had so long endured, and I even welcomed his presence as a relief. "'And you have not seen it?' he said abruptly, after having stared about him for some moments in silence. "'You have not seen it, but stay. You shall.' Thus speaking, and having carefully shaded his lamp, he hurried to one of the casements, and threw it freely open to the storm. The impetuous fury of the entering gust nearly lifted us from our feet. It was, indeed, a tempestuous yet sternly beautiful night, and one wildly singular in its terror and its beauty. A whirlwind had apparently collected its force in our vicinity, for there were frequent and violent alterations in the direction of the wind. We had no glimpse of the moon or stars, nor was there any flashing forth of the lightning, under-surfaces of the huge masses of agitated vapor, as well as all terrestrial objects immediately around us, were glowing in the unnatural light of a faintly luminous and distinctly visible gaseous exhalation which hung about and enshrouded the mansion. You must not, you shall not behold this, said I shuddering to usher as I led him with a gentle violence from the window to his seat. These appearances which bewilder you are merely electrical phenomena, not uncommon, or it may be that they had their ghastly origin in the rank miasma of the tarn. Let us close this casement. The air is chilling and dangerous to your frame. Here is one of your favorite romances. I will read and you shall listen, and so we will pass away this terrible night together. The antique volume which I had taken up was The Mad Tryst of Sir Lancelot Caning. I had arrived at the well-known portion of the story where Ethelred, the hero of the tryst, having sought in vain for peaceable admission into the dwelling of the hermit, proceeds to make good an entrance by force. Here, it will be remembered, the words of the narrative ran thus: And Ethelred, who was by nature of a doughty heart, waited no longer to hold parley with the hermit, who, in sooth, was of an obstinate and maliceful turn, uplifted his mace outright, and with blows, sturdily he so cracked and ripped and tore all asunder that the noise of the dry and hollow-sounding wood alarmed and reverberated throughout the forest. At the termination of this sentence, I started, and for a moment paused, for it appeared to me that from some very remote portion of the mansion there came, indistinctly to my ears, what might have been, in its exact similarity of character, the echo of the very cracking and ripping sound which Sir Lancelot had so particularly described. It was beyond doubt the coincidence alone which had arrested my attention. I continued my story. But the good champion, Ethelred, now entering within the door, was sore, enraged, and amazed to perceive no signal of the maliceful hermit, but in the stead thereof, a dragon of scaly and prodigious demeanor, which sat in guard before a palace of gold with a floor of silver, and upon the wall there hung a shield of shining brass with this legend in written. Who entereth herein, a conqueror hath been, who slayeth the dragon, the shield he shall win. And Ethelred uplifted his mace and struck upon the head of the dragon which fell before him and gave up his pesty breath with a shriek so horrid and harsh the like whereof was never before heard. Here again I paused abruptly and now with a feeling of wild amazement for there could be no doubt whatever that in this instance I did actually hear a low and apparently distant but harsh, protracted, and most unusual screaming or grating sound, the exact counterpart of what my fancy had already conjured up for the dragon's unnatural shriek as described by the romancer. Oppressed by a thousand conflicting sensations, I still retained sufficient presence of mind to avoid exciting my companion, I was by no means certain that he had noticed the sounds in my question, although assuredly a strange alternation had, during the last few minutes, taken place in his demeanor. From a position fronting my own, he had gradually brought round his chair so as to sit with his face to the door of the chamber, and thus I could but partially perceive his features. Although I saw that his lips trembled as if he were murmuring inaudibly, His head had dropped upon his breast, yet I knew that he was not asleep. From the wide and rigid opening of the eyes, I caught a glance of it in profile. The motion of his body, too, was at variance with the idea, for he rocked from side to side with a gentle yet constant uniform sway, having rapidly taken notice of all this. I resumed the narrative of Sir Lancelot, which thus proceeded. And now the champion, having escaped from the terrible fury of the dragon, bethinking himself of the brazen shield, approached valorously over the silver pavement of the castle to where the shield was upon the wall, which in sooth tarried not for his full coming, but fell down at his feet upon the silver floor with a mighty great and terrible ringing sound. No sooner had these syllables passed my lips than, as if a shield of brass had indeed At that moment, fallen heavily upon a floor of silver, I became aware of a distinct, hollow, metallic, and clangorous, yet apparently muffled reverberation. Completely unnerved, I leapt to my feet. But the measured rocking movement of Usher was undisturbed. I rushed to the chair in which he sat. His eyes were bent fixedly before him, and throughout his whole countenance there reigned a stony rigidity. But as I placed my hand upon his shoulder, there came a strong shudder over his whole person. A sickly smile quivered about his lips, and I saw that he spoke in a low, hurried, and gibbering murmur as if unconscious of my presence, bending closely over him, I, at length, drank in the hideous import of his words. Now hear it, yes, I hear it, and have heard it long, 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 many minutes, many hours, many days have I heard it, yet I dared not, oh, pity mean miserable wretch that I am? I dared not, I dared not speak. We have put her living in the tomb said I not that my senses were acute I now tell you that I have heard her first few movements in the hollow coffin I heard them many many days ago yet I dared not I dared not speak and now tonight (laughs) Ethelred, the breaking of the hermit's door and the death cry of the dragon and the clangor of the shield say rather the rending of her coffin and the grating of the iron hinges of her prison and her struggles within the coppered archway of the vault oh Whither shall I fly? Will she not be here not? Is she not hurrying to upbraid me for my haste? Have I not heard her footstep on the stair? Do I not distinguish that heavy and horrible beating of a heart, madman? Madman, I tell you that she now stands without the door. As if in the superhuman energy of his utterance, there had been found the potency of a spell, the huge antique panels to which the speaker pointed threw slowly back upon the instant their ponderous and ebony jaws. It was the work of the rushing gust, but then, without those doors, there did stand the lofty and enshrouded figure of the Lady Madeline of Usher. There was blood upon her white robes, and the evidence of some bitter struggle upon every portion of her emaciated frame. For a moment she remained trembling and reeling to and fro upon the threshold, then with a low moaning cry fell heavily inward upon the person of her brother, and in her violent and now final death agonies bore him to the floor a corpse and a victim to the terrors he anticipated. From that chamber and from that mansion I fled aghast. The storm was still abroad in all its wrath as I found myself crossing the old causeway. Suddenly there shot along the path a wild light, and I turned to see whence a gleam so unusual could have issued, for the vast house and its shadow were alone behind me. The radiance was that of the full setting and blood-red moon. Which now shone vividly through that once barely discernible fissure of which I have before spoken, extending from the roof of the building in a exact direction to the base. While I gazed, this entire orb of the satellite burst at once upon my sight. My brain reeled as I saw the mighty walls rushing asunder. There was a long, tumultuous shouting sound like the voice of a thousand waters, and the deep and dank tarn at my feet closed sullenly and silently over the fragments of the House of Usher.
0: Tonight's episode was directed by ensemble member Dorothy Milne, produced by Lifeline Theater and Sound Concept Media. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to hear about future projects. You can support our podcast at patreon.com lifelinetheater Lifeline Theater.